You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You're now tuned into the Pod Awful channel. Pod Awful. Bi-quarterly women's social club. Dazed and convicted. Pool party radio. Showcase. The devil's advocate. The projection booth. Awful flips. Pod Support for the Projection Booth podcast comes from Stitcher Smart Radio. Now podcast listeners can access the latest episodes of the Projection Booth and thousands of other podcasts on the go without downloading or syncing. Stitcher instantly delivers episodes of your favorite shows to your mobile phone. Stitcher Smart Radio can be found in the iPhone and Android app stores or on the web at stitcher.com slash booth. I'm your host, Rob St. Mary, and joining me, of course, Mr. Mike White. My qualifications are rape, arson, murder, and rape. You said rape twice. I like rape. Well, then I guess I've come to the right place, son. Also, with us this week, our friend, Coffin John. Good to be on again. All right, sir. This week, we're looking at Naosuke Kurosawa's 1980 Japanese Roman porno film, Zoom In Sex Apartments, also known as Zoom In Rape Apartments. The film tells the tale of Seiko, a young woman who's in a relationship, but gets raped on the way to visit an old flame. The assault appears to be part of a series of similar rapes and murders that are taking place in an apartment block. The film is visually striking and seems to be inspired by Dario Argento's 1970s Giallo films. Now, Coffin John is our guest. When was the first time you saw Zoom In Sex Apartments, and what did you think? Well, back in 1980, when I was only eight and cruising the streets of Shinjuku, I was in search for some new thrills. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I just saw this movie last night, uh, much because you guys uh, asked me to for this show. And uh, again, thanks for having me on. Very much appreciate it. Um, as far as what I thought of the film... Um, well, I was kind of equal parts uh, disturbed and befuddled. Um, I would say disturbed because the film has some genuinely kind of like disturbing scenes and disturbing moments to it. But at the same time, um, I don't know if it was because the film, maybe parts of it were, you know, left on the cutting room floor. But, uh, you know, it kind of 
it kind of adds up to a lot of confusion in the end as far as you know what it all means if it means anything at all really and uh actually i, I really uh, like the assessment that the the film is inspired by uh, dario argento's uh, giallo films i would also say that there's also a small part of uh you know a small maybe not equal part of uh don't go in the house which was the 19 i think it was 1979 film it was, I think it was out maybe the same year as this film or the year before. I can't quite remember. What specifically about Don't Go in the House? Well, just the element of, you know, using the fire and the, you know, misogyny, um, you know, in uh, Zoom in Rape Apartments, you know, the um, the antagonist, uh, you know, basically, uh, I don't know if it this is a spoiler, but he sets fire to women's private parts and don't go in the house is also, you know, it, there's that element of fire and, uh, as a means of, uh, uh, for, you know, no pun intended, extinguishing his victims. As for you, Mr. Mike, I saw this for the first time, probably about three months ago. I really haven't seen – I'm probably going to say this statement out front and say, I haven't seen that many pink films or Roman porno films. And then as we go along, be like, oh, yeah, I did see that. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> I don't think I've seen that many. I tend to lean more towards the artsy-fartsy, even when they kind of have an exploitation uh, twinge on them, like the Wakamatsu films. I would guess maybe you could say some of those are kind of pink films, but – not necessarily. So, yeah, I tend to go more towards the um, the really obtuse kind of Japanese stuff during this era or um, probably a little bit before. But I was really rather pleased with this film. I was very surprised and very happy to see just how beautifully filmed it was. It was an absolutely gorgeous film. And I was very uh, disturbed by this. And rewatching it again last night, even knowing what was going to happen, I was still equally, um, maybe even more disturbed than the second watch. I think in a lot of ways this sort of ties back to last week's episode on water power in that they're taking these elements that normally don't go together and they're, they can be quite disturbing. <laughs> and with this film, I, I definitely agree with you. This movie was put in my hands by our guest this week, Jerry Chandler, over at Synapse Film when Mike and I were on uh, at ZombieCon in Detroit and Synapse had a table there and they were selling their wares and we were talking and I saw all these films and I was like, what is this? Like you guys have a whole series of this. And he explained to me sort of what they were. And he was like, well, what are you sort of interested in? And I, said, I wouldn't even know where to begin. So he gave me this one because I said, I, I like Dario Argento's stuff in our conversation. And then he also gave me a trailer disc and I think the trailer disc is fascinating, and we'll talk more about that later. But as for Zoom In Sex Apartments, I do agree with you that it is disturbing, and I think that there's some of the things in here that um, I think maybe for an American audience and currently a modern audience, I just don't think they would put up with. It's um, it, it's kind of hard to find it uh, – an, an entertaining film, you know what I mean? But I think it's a very interesting film. And as Mike, you were saying in terms of its design and look and things like that, it, uh, 
it does have a lot going on. And then also, John, to your point where you said there's a lot of confusion, I think that some of the imagery also lends itself to that confusion as the film goes on, but I think might be more symbolic or expressionistic. So some of the stuff that's in here, I'm, I started to wonder for myself, did it actually really happen? Or is this some sort of like dreams or nightmares kind of scenario? Yeah, I can totally see that. The, the way that, well, I have to say, you know, you compared the Star Gento and it definitely has that jello feel. I mean, we've got our main, um, guy wearing, black gloves through the almost the entire film and a little black stocking cap. He looks so cute in that. I was like, Oh, it's OJ. Um, but I was very surprised. One of the things that I've learned from my very limited experience with Jallos, mostly via this show is that Jallos seem to be filled with red herrings, not the actual fish, but the, you know, look at this guy. Oh, this is going to be the killer. Oh, this woman could be the killer. Oh, we're going to throw this over here. And you don't know the, the shape and size of the killer. And none of that really happens in this film. It's like, oh, hey, her uh, this boyfriend guy, he sure looks a lot like that killer. And it's like within a few minutes, it's like, yep, for sure. He's the killer. No, it's no one else. You know, maybe it was the old guy whose daughter. Nope. No, it's this guy for sure. And it was just like, no, there is no I, there I, is no thriller element. There is no yeah. suspense element in this. No, no. No, and there's like the psychology thing with the toy piano and all this stuff. And so I'm thinking of like Deep Red and the opening of that. And like, you know, and the piano playing character, David Hemmings, and that. And I'm like, oh, well, that's going to come back. No. <laughs> it's like, it doesn't help that this movie's only like 70 minutes long. So there's probably a lot of stuff that could have been in there to build this up. But it's like, no, you know, let's, let's have this, our main character, let's have Seiko. She's got to have sex at least like five times before the first. 10 minutes is over of this film it feels like yeah which includes uh, a rather brutal rape scene in what i've dubbed the wasteland which is this sort of flat sort of land in the middle of nowhere where there's like oil barrels and it's dusty and she gets knocked off this bike and there's this whole scene and that's the first time that we're introduced like i said to this sort of framed like argento uh giallo killer moment where he's got this tool and he's got the black gloves and he's got the trench coat and and all of that kind of stuff that goes along with, as you were saying, something like Deep Red specifically. Yeah, the sh- actually the short length of the film. Um, that this is why I made this comment about uh, whether you know part of the uh, film maybe got uh, left on the cutting room floor. You know, one of the characteristics of pink film, especially these. Um, these uh, Roman porno films is that they had very short uh, lengths, uh, mainly because they were put on triple bills. Um, so, you know, you'd get three films for the price of, for a very s- extremely low price. I mean, even now you can go see a triple bill in uh, Tokyo uh, of pink films, probably for like around five, six bucks or so. But um, as far as, you know, the length of the film goes, um, you know, th- that's why I was left kind of confused because I was wondering, you know, is this really, you know, is this really what the director wanted to put on the screen or is it just, you know, just like this because they had to chop off certain scenes and they just kind of realized, well, it sort of makes sense as it is now. So let's go ahead and put it out because that was sort of a characteristic of uh, Pink Film there also was to just, you know, make it pretty cheap and, you know, get it out the door. One of the things that I really think that the film is about in, you know, when we talk about like Argento and things like that, it's usually about trying to find out who, who the killer is and things like that in the film. And I think really what this movie is more about is about the main character's 
uh, realization of her own relationship. And what I mean by that is, is in the beginning, she's with her husband, and he's about to go out on a trip, and he wants he wants to have sex with her and all this, and she doesn't really seem all that excited about it, but is really keyed in to like, okay, well, if we're going to, like, you have to wear a condom. So there's this whole thing about that. And then he leaves, and then she goes off to visit this old flame. I get the idea that, that he's going to be gone for a couple of weeks and she's going to go off and meet this old boyfriend of hers. And we learned that in their conversation, it had been about five years since they broken up. And he said that when she left, he was so angry that he wanted to kill her and all of this. And he's very like, his apartment is the complete opposite of hers. It's like hers is very open and warm and it's lit well and all this. And his place is very dark and in shadows. And there's like this painting that's always sort of out of skew and things like that. So get the idea. It's very sinister. And of course, we come to uh, understand, like like you were saying in the first few minutes, that um, he, uh, spoiler, uh, is this guy who's doing all this stuff. And in the end, I think what it is when we consider sort of the final scene where she's back with her husband, he's come back from the trip and she's like, yeah, you know, let's, let's do it. And you don't have to wear a condom. And she's much more like happier and together and things like that is the idea that maybe it's really about her realization of what her relationship is. Like this was sort of that could have been with someone. And then she goes to investigate that, maybe I should have been with this guy instead of who I'm with and then realizes in the end, no, actually I did make the right choice and I'm committed to what I have and I'm happy with what I have. And I think that's really the arc of the film is her, her realization, her sort of movement than it is so much, um, you know, who the killer is and all the suspense around that. So it's, it's kind of an interesting, uh, different device and then the use of certain imagery the whole thing with the fire as you were saying uh i think we talked about this before and i can't remember what film it was on what episode mike but the idea of pyromania standing in as a symbol of sexual repression that people who are often sexually repressed will light things on fire if you read like the dsm-4 and what you know sort of the statistic manual of you know who are pyromaniacs so um, I think that might also play in here as well. Yeah, I think so. Um, especially, you know, now that we're talking about it, you know, if you connected with the imagery, you know, at the very end of the film, you know, um, you know, just like Westerners, uh, Japanese also have a metaphor with uh, fire as being, you know, your emotion, you know, or your, in if we to extend it to uh, what you're saying, Rob, is your is your sexual emotion or feeling. And, you know, you kind of feel that at least at the end with the imagery we have with uh, Saeko, with her sort of like moving on with her life, uh, you know, without the, um, without the, uh, the, um, I guess, again, spoiler, the killer, uh, essentially, you know, we're saying that, you know, even though she can move on, you know, she is in a way still very much consumed by, you know, that the passion that uh, she has with uh, or she had with his uh, with the relationship with him. Yeah. Leaving him was probably the best thing that she could have done because he is crazy um (laughs) and he doesn't make much money right i mean he's a piano tuner for all yeah yeah piano tuner and he likes that uh felt picker um uses that as his weapon of choice and really it's like 
within moments, like they're at the apartment, you know, she, she just got raped. She comes back to, it goes to his apartment, falls off of her bicycle. She has a real hard time staying on her bicycle, gets to his apartment. She's wandering around without him. He shows up and, and uh, I mean, it's within moments really that they're knocking over his uh, piano tuning equipment. And it's this very, very distinctive tool. You know, it kind of looks like an ice pick, but it's this thing for felt picking. So it's almost like within the first 10 minutes of the film, you're like, oh, well, it really looks like this guy, but I can't quite be sure because the other guy dresses all in black, kind of like this guy. (laughs) And it's within a few minutes after that, that we have the first, um, murder rape that's going on a rape murder and the killer is just vicious but he like soaks a rag in some sort of um uh, uh, fl- flammable material and puts it inside of this woman lights her on fire pours all this stuff all over and she just goes up like a roman candle and that's one of at least three women that he burns up in different ways and to your guys's point there's one scene later on where he's stuffing this body into an an oven and there's this i just in my notes i just called her crazy girl i don't know if she necessarily had a name but there's this girl who happens to see him and she's having a a really good time um stuffing her face with food and watching food, him food from garbage bags because it yeah. seems like a garbage incinerator and she's just like rummaging through the trash like picking out bits of food and it's just like oh what the you know <laughs> like that yeah. like i'm used to like john waters style depravity but that's like yeah i don't even think john waters would have people eating like rotten food out of the garbage yeah that was nasty and she's getting really hot and bothered by seeing him stuffing this uh, body into this incinerator. And yeah, that is just, that's one of the weirdest scenes for me, even more than like the woman that he sets on fire in the building and stuff. It's just like, what is this chick's deal? What is her problem? And she kind of becomes a, a little bit of a thorn in his side as the film goes on. Yeah. I assume that she had some sort of mental illness. Uh, you know, it's, it's well known in the uh, at least the Japanese film community that uh, they're not very good at depicting uh, mental illnesses. You know, it's just just being like straight up crazy and doing weird things. You know, um, the Hong, you know, to be fair, Hong Kong film is very much like that too. So, oh yeah, I remember uh, Chow Yan Fat and God of Gambles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Embarrassing. When you talk about those murder scenes, the the, the reason why we go back to you know. Argento and his Giallo films is that they're such set pieces that even even though they are disturbing and they should be disturbing, they're done in such a particular way that they're so stylized and in a way sort of like darkly beautiful in, in the way that they're handled. And, and really the whole film, I mean, the, this film for, as you were saying, John, this whole series being, you know, sort of like cheaply made, uh, get them out quick kind of stuff. I mean, they, whoever designed this thing and put this thing together i mean it probably owes a lot to the director that it looks great like just the the setups on these things especially like you were saying with that whole like furnace and there's all these things going on especially in that scene uh the the whole thing with the uh what is it uh, playground equipment or something and then there's this uh scene with an eyeball that gets uh poked out with i think barbed wire i mean like some of this stuff like i said goes to me, like automatically, like they, that eyeball barbed wire scene, I'm thinking Fulci zombie or something with the like the, the wooden uh, 
you know, spike that goes into the guy's eye. It's like, yeah, I'm just, you know, I, I, someone was watching some Italian horror films over there. Yeah, I think that might, the, as far as the quality goes, that, that might be attributed to the studio. I mean, Nikatsu, you know, at the time, there were um, several studios doing pink film, and, you know, Nikatsu were one of them. And, you know, the, I think the reason why the Roman porno series went on for so long was because, you know, they had this uh, mark of quality about them that, you know, a lot of the, especially the indie pink films could not reach because, you know, obviously, you know, money talks right so so um you know with that you know with that said you know i think that quality definitely transfers itself to a lot of the other uh films in the roman porno um uh canon i guess you could say well they definitely kept it cheap as far as the number of actors they don't have that many other than are really i guess there's for sure the two main characters i don't know if you would call cray cray or the husband a main character or the the girlfriend that she has this kind of lesbian tryst with i don't they're just kind of more side characters really and then they also did a good job of shooting a lot of things outdoors using natural light but even when it was coming to the inside scenes, the indoor scenes, I don't know if those were necessarily sets. It looked like it was almost all shot on location. I guess it was, yeah, on location, probably probably outside the Nikatsu studios, you know, possibly. Um, you know, and but to, back to your comments as far as, like, you know, the limited number of actors and everything, I mean, again, this is the sort of the confinement of the genre where, you know, you have only so much time to work with uh, both in terms of the length of the film as well as the length of the production itself. I mean, they probably filmed this entire film within like three or four days, I would guess. So, you know, don't make it complex. You know, don't have multiple characters. Don't have multiple storylines or at the very least try to keep them, you know, pretty narrow as far as their you know, the, their effect on the entire story and, you know, have this much sex in it and, you know, do it within this budget. And then, you know, when we're all done, you know, we'll all have a beer together, you know, that kind of thing. With the, the way rape is handled in the film. And as I said, the original title was zoom in rape apartments. And you'll hear in the interview with Jerry Chandler, why it's uh sex apartments, at least in the United States. Um, it's, I don't know. I, like I said, I think this is one of the key things, like when we talked about water power last week, why um, maybe you could have gotten away with this there. I don't necessarily know about uh, Japanese culture. Maybe, John, you have more insight into that. But uh, I, I definitely know I don't think you can make an American film like this because there's sort of two or three things in there in relation to – let's just talk about um, – the abuse of the main character and sort of her arc. There's this whole thing where, you know, she's raped, then she refuses to tell the cops, doesn't tell her fiance anything. Um, there's the whole thing where it's like, it seems like it's the same day where she meets her, her former boyfriend and, and then has sex with him. And there's no mention that this had happened. It's almost like, like I said, at times I get this feeling that maybe this is dream because it seems so disconnected from reality. And then there's the scene later where she goes back to that place and confronts the rapist. And I think that was pretty well handled, at least from a, you know, from the standpoint of how do you deal with the issue? But, um, it, it is very brutal, and as I, I've said before, if you're going to show something that is brutal, it should be brutal, and it should be uh, not comfortable for the audience. 
But at the same time, I think there's sort of a mix of philosophical messaging on this that makes it, I, I think, uncomfortable to watch on another level. Yeah, um, as far as how rape is treated in Japan, well, <laughs> yeah, that's a lengthy subject in itself. That might take a whole you know, 10 or 20 uh, podcast episodes to get through. But, um, you know, my, if I were just to uh, condense it into just a couple sentences, you know, rape, I think as far as, you know, how the character treats, you know, her being raped is that... Um, you know, there's a there's an element of unfortunate shame that goes with it. You know, it's not so much that, you know, I want, you know, if I were the woman, let's say I'm speaking as a woman, you know, I want to tell someone what's happened, but, you know, they're just going to look at me as being some sort of weakling or some sort of, you know, worthless woman or, you know, you know, at the, in the worst case, slut, right? I guess, you know, in some ways that's, that uh, sort of thinking goes on in the U.S. as well, but um, but especially over in Japan, you know, where it's very much, you know, uh, um, it would be the victim would be seen as you know the one who's the criminal essentially. Um, so I think you know in that aspect, I could sort of understand that the transition from you know the initial rape scene to when she's with her husband, though. Yeah, that was kind of uncomfortable for me too, and I was kind of wondering if again that that was part of what was left on the you know the cutting room floor so to speak but um i guess you know with since it's being a pink film you just gotta kind of you know move on and just just take take the ride so to speak yeah rape is definitely one of those things where it happens a lot in the japanese films that i've watched even the the uh, samurai films and stuff i'm hoping one of these days that we're going to cover the lone wolf and cub films and i think in the main six of those, there's probably at least one rape of film, if maybe there's one film without a rape, but it's definitely there, and unfortunately, a lot of times, it just seems to be one of these things that moves the story along. It doesn't necessarily seem to be it doesn't have the gravitas in storytelling that it necessarily has in the United States. You know, so that's what I'm used to. I'm used to the accused or something where it's just like, Oh my God, that becomes the central part of the film. Whereas in a lot of the wolf and cub films, it's like, yeah. And then this chick got raped and then blah, blah, blah. And it's like, really, you can just kind of blow by that. Okay. This is very much a big cultural difference for me, but I guess I'll accept it while I'm watching this film and just feel uncomfortable and deal with it later. Well, I mean, my experience with it in terms of Japanese film has been in some of the uh, Fukuzaku gangster films in the 70s. There is a couple of characters who who that ends up happening to, but they seem to be uh, asserting themselves. I'm thinking of, what is it, uh, uh, Street street Gangster or Yakuza Graveyard or something. Uh, there's a prostitute who gets raped, and then she basically seeks revenge on one of the, the characters throughout the film. So it, it's used more as a revenge plot point, which is what we see in, I think, in some American film, if they're not going to play it as a, you know, a, a law courtroom case kind of thing, it then becomes a, re- a revenge plot point, like um, what, like Kill Bill or something. Yes. Yes. I was going to ask you, Rob, are you familiar with the works of Thomas Weiser? No. Or Weiser? Uh, <laughs> I imagine you are, John. But of course. 
<laughs> For those of you who may not know Thomas Weiser, he was the guy who wrote um, Asian cult cinema for a long time, which was a zine out of, I guess, Florida. He also had a lot to do with um, Video Search of Miami. That was kind of his thing. And he is kind of infamous for writing a lot of reviews of films and maybe he's seen them or maybe he got a closed head injury between the time that he saw them and the time that he wrote about them. But they're hilarious in the fact that they're usually incredibly wrong. So this one isn't too bad as far as being wrong, but there's a lot of things where I'm like, I don't necessarily remember this the same way. But then again, you know, He's he's allegedly fluent in Japanese, so maybe, and definitely his wife is, so maybe he's seen these films in a completely different way. So I was uh, laughing quite a bit when I was reading reading this one, like uh, you know the the names of the characters, talking about how the piano tuner lives a few doors down, and Arena thinks she recognizes him as a rapist who assaulted her some years back. And one day, the woman happens to see the man attack the brutally and brutally assault two women. Now, Arena knows for certain it's the same man, but she is reluctant to contact the police because he's she's inexplicably attracted to him. So, I yeah, that doesn't necessarily really encapsulate zoom in rape apartments to me very well at all. No, I think maybe thirty uh, percent of that is correct. <laughs> which in Weiser's work is a really high percentage. You should read Mike, Mike Sullivan, who has been on the show several times. He wrote a um, parody of a Thomas Weiser book. <laughs> and it was hilarious. Just like all the wrong people in the cast over and over again, like putting Eli Wallach in every single cast of even like the wizard of Oz. It just, you know, re, <laughs> writing these reviews of famous movies as if Thomas Weiser had written them. It is just fall down funny to me. Yeah. I guess the unfortunate fallout of that is because, you know, back then when he was doing Asian cult cinema, I used to buy Asian cult cinema too. Um, this was, you know, back, God, this must've been the nineties, I guess, early nineties. I can't even remember, but, um, it was that, you know, we, the information wasn't readily available to oh, yeah. people, you know, and you know, you could, you know, I you know I don't know how much. I mean, I've read enough of Weiser stuff to say, well, you know, some of his stuff is good, some of his stuff is kind of, eh. you know. But I've, you know, you you just kind of think that well, it would have been easy for someone to pull that off because you know all you got to do is, I mean, maybe he watched the film without subtitles and just you know surmised what was happening, you know, without knowing exactly you know language wise, you know, the interactions between the characters and the, you know, it's hard to say. You know, I'm I'm kind of maybe excusing him a little bit. I, I know it sounds like I'm doing that, but, you know, at least back then, you know, it was very easy to, you know, get away with that if, if you wanted to. Yeah, his stuff was just it, – it's funny now when so many things are so readily available to go back and, and kind of check his work and be like, what? What is going on here? <laughs> <laughs> I remember a lot of people giving him a lot of grief for the subtitles that he used to do for different movies because they were almost more like this would sound really cool rather than this is what the people are actually saying. So you can make sort of like a game, maybe a drinking game. How about that? There you go. 
You know, what's interesting about this whole thing, and when we go to the interview, you'll hear uh, Jerry Chandler say that when it comes to reviewing these films, he watches them without subtitles, and he doesn't speak really? Japanese. So so I, I can understand maybe somebody writing up a review or writing up a, an overview of this film who has no subtitles and doesn't understand the language, and maybe coming up with some glaring errors because obviously if you don't know what the hell they're saying and the plot, then you just, you're relying on what the visuals are telling you. But, um, yeah, that, uh, as you said, this man supposedly is fluent in the language. That kind of seems unexcusable. Just seems kind of weird that you would posit yourself as the authority on these films when you're kind of not, but I don't know. I, I just thought that you might be amused by that, Rob, because it's kind of a blast from the past and looking out online and seeing, you know, write ups of this film, still very few. And so I turned to Weiser's book because I was also curious about the other films because this was one of, I want to say, seven films in a series. And I was curious about the other ones because I know uh, Synapse had put out the uh, Zoom Up Beaver book, I think it is. And I was curious about the other uh, Zoom Up films versus Zoom In and wanted to know, you know, is there a theme? Are there common characters? And Weiss was the only person that has written about more than one of those. And uh, I was just, yeah, as soon as I read the review of Rape Apartment right after I had seen the movie, I was like, yeah, I'm not going to read the rest of these reviews because <laughs> who knows how far off the mark they are. Uh, uh, well, I guess in one way we can say uh, thank the Lord for the Internet because it allows us now to check and dispute other people's work. Yeah. It's just funny that it's still out there lingering around. So, you know, it, it's, it would be, I don't want to say that there should be book burnings. <laughs> but, hey, watch where you're putting those books on fire. Right. Okay, we're going to take a break and play an interview with Jerry Chandler of Synapse Films, the company that has brought a raft of these Nakatsu Roman porno films to America after these messages. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, where the good folks here at The Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies, every Tuesday. Movies need only three things. Badasses. You tell me what you want done, and I'll do the hell out of it. A chick with drive who don't take no jive. Boobs. Do you know that the female breast, known to be the source of life since Eve, can be deadly weapons? And body counts. Mathematics of murder and menace. The BBNBC podcast discusses lesser known action, exploitation, and horror cult cinema. You can find the show on iTunes, Stitcher Smart Radio, and SoundCloud by searching for BBNBC podcast. You can also listen to each episode directly on the show's website at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Got the goddamn message? Let's go to work.
This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. My name's Jerry Chandler, and uh, I'm uh, partners with Don May Jr. here at Synapse Films. Don does all the DVD and Blu-ray creation, and I handle the business end of the business. And, uh, you know, Don is most of the time he's watching the same movie over and over and over again, getting it perfect. And so what I do is I'm like the first line of watching screeners and stuff, and if there's something particularly interesting, um, I'll send it up for him to, to look at. Well, most of what we get, we can't use, and it never goes to Don. And sometimes things are so great that uh, I'll just approve it before it gets to Don. But, you know, if there's a, like, uh, it's we're on the fence a little bit, I'll send it up to him, and we'll decide together. Well, when we met last time uh, face-to-face to talk was at ZombieCon. Uh, Mike and I were there, and we were presenting and you guys were set up there, and you had the table, and you were showing me some of the new stuff and some of the other stuff. And one of the things that you brought to my attention was this whole line of films that you guys have put out from Nikatsu. Now, when I think Nikatsu, I think Seijun Suzuki. I think of all of his gangster films and the fact that they fired him for being too weird. But I wasn't really familiar with this whole division of what they were doing. I What is it, from the 70s to about the mid-80s or so? Can you kind of explain um, how this sort of developed and how it came under your radar? I want to stress that, you know, everything I say may not be 100% accurate. This I will give you the information to the best of my knowledge. Mikatsu started as a film corporation about 100 years ago. What they've told me, they've done over 4,000 films, but around 4,000. You know, it's it's really hard to say how we first became aware of Nikatsu or how they first became aware of us. But needless to say, you know, they sent over a few representatives um, a number of years ago, a guy named Tomo, wonderful man, uh, fan, just a fantastic guy. And uh, he explained to me about the uh, thousand uh, Roman porno films. Now, Roman porno, it's a bit of a misnomer. It means romantic pornography. And it's not really pornography. These were just, this is just what uh, the Japanese called their love stories with a little bit of uh, nudity involved. Again, there, there's a number of interesting things. Some people may notice some digital fogging and stuff like that in the movies. Uh, these were shot at a time when uh, the display of a single pubic hair would have got, gotten the film producers, the actors, actresses, the theater owners, and in some cases even the theater patrons all put in jail. So they had to be completely sure that there, nothing was showing. So even if you remove the digital fogging or the burning of the negative, uh, the women were wearing a white strip. This is actually in the liner notes on the first few um, discs we did. But uh, they're crazy, crazy movies. And, uh, you know, they range from giallo-type horror films, which is the one I believe you guys are doing, I'm talking to you in regards to. Uh, Isn't it uh, Zoom In... uh, Sex apartment? Yep. 
That's what we're doing. Yeah, because you put it in my hand and you said, if you like Dario Argento, you really need to see this one. But you said there's like a whole line of these movies. They did uh, sort of an assembly of these things for a while, all different kinds of stuff, all sort of, I guess, what here in America we would call softcore in some way. Sure. In our original 26 movie package, not including the trailer disc, uh, I selected from like all these different genres of Nikatsu Roman porno. So you have a couple of light, almost funny movies like uh, the uh, um, the Pearl Diving Girls. Uh, you have something that's more horrifying, like uh, the one you're doing. Uh, you have all kinds of different... I mean, rape is a huge, huge uh, subject matter for the Japanese. Um, and, you know, they handle it. I've never seen people handle rapes so differently. You know, it's funny. We we have two titles that of of the first I think of the first twenty six films Don's working a number twenty three and twenty four now so we have twenty two out plus the trailer disc so out of twenty three releases Amazon has banned two one is the trailer disc and the other one is called Arrow School feels so good and it's a comedy about a rapist in a high school. And it's not misogyny. It's it's like a really stupid, funny movie. And Amazon doesn't get it. If you go to Amazon, you will see porn on Amazon with full nudity. Um, sometimes they have the exposed bits covered, whatever. But if a movie has a rape theme, regardless of how the rape is presented, from, you know, I guess from Nikatsu, it's banned. And if a movie has the word rape in the title, it's banned. Now, none of these movies treat rape the way it's treated in a movie like I Spit on Your Grave, where you'll find all over Amazon a million different versions. I despise those movies because of the misogyny towards women. These movies aren't like that, but yet they get banned because of the theme. You know, there's a double standard operating in Amazon, and it's it's quite troubling, to be honest with you. Is that part of the reason why I know that the one we're doing is called Zoom In Sex Apartments is the title, the American title, but wasn't it called Rape Apartments? And then did it have to be changed because of that for marketing or what was the deal? Yes, we've chose to, to change it because we, we can see if we put rape in the title, Amazon won't carry it and the public will not have a chance to watch the movie at all because Pretty much these days, Amazon is the place to go to find our stuff, or maybe a Diabolic or a few sites like that, but we have very little brick-and-mortar presence, and everything uh, goes to Amazon. Now, what we try and do, I don't know if we've done it in every case, but what we're trying to do is when we have to change a title to something a little bit more benign, like Zoom in uh, Rape Apartments, yes, we changed it to Zoom in Sex Apartments, what we try and do is put the original title on the flip side so you have a dual-sided cover. Uh, but there's going to be a lot of that coming up. I just did two more 10-movie deals with Nikatsu, which is going to bring our total to 46 plus the trailer desk. And, you know, it's funny. A kid from Iceland got a hold of me, and he said, you have to do... Uh, rape 13 hours and zoom up rape site. These are the most notorious rape films from Nikatsu. And, you know, we take every email from fans very seriously. So I got a hold of my Nikatsu rep and, uh, 
you know, they were willing to actually pull these titles out of the vaults. So these are going to be the first time they've ever been on uh, home video anywhere. So and it's pretty interesting stuff. But, of course, they're going to have slightly different names. You're not going to see Zoom Up Rape Site. You're going to see Zoom Up Assault Site or something like that. But just know it is the movie you're thinking it is, um, and that's why we have to change the names. So as for this whole series of films, what got them into doing these in, what was it, in the early 70s? Is that correct? And Katsu started making uh, this whole series of films. Kind of when did it run from uh, date to date? Do you have an idea? I look at, uh, like, I'm looking at my deal memo for the, the very latest deal I just did, and they list the movies and the years. And on this particular deal, my earliest one is from 1977, and my latest one is from 1988. And you got to figure between uh, 73, 74 and the late 80s is, was when uh, these were being made. But like I said earlier, you know, I'm not an exact historian, so, you know, my knowledge of the exact dates is not not very good. What was it that brought this out? I mean, obviously in America during that time in the uh, early 70s, we started to see, you know, the influx uh, move from softcore to hardcore porn here in America. Um, you know, things like Deep Throat, Opening of Misty Beethoven, things like that. Was it a similar thing over in Japan, but they just couldn't do the hardcore? Like, what was sort of the cultural change from the folks that, that you've talked to about it? Again, I, it's, hard, it's hard to say. You know, they couldn't really go into hardcore porn because of the laws. And, you know, I really bristle when this stuff is referred to as, as porn, you know, either as hardcore or softcore, because there's so much more than that, you know. The emphasis on these movies is really not so much to just show the cheap TNA in a vehicle. These are big directors, big actors, big actresses, big screenwriters in Japan. Um, as a matter of fact, I'm having a hard time. I was uh, initially going to try and get the Angel Gut series, and they're pretty mild movies. They're, I mean, the, the name, Angel Guts, is very, you know, uh, I don't know the exact word for it, but it's shocking, you know. But the actual movies, are they're decent films, and they're not over the top by any stretch of the imagination. But I was told by my rep that one of the five films was pulled because the actress was embarrassed that she ever did it, and they, you know, they, she didn't want it seen anymore. And they complied, and this isn't the first time I've heard of that happening. So, you know, what you have is these stories are all really good, and they're really not porn actresses that are in them. They're, they're real actresses. And For example, Fairy in a Cage is an amazing film. It's just amazing. Yeah, it has some shocking... Uh, sexual stuff in it, but that's along with the film as opposed to the film simply being a vehicle to deliver those shocks to you. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, when we talk about this one, you know, Zoom In Sex Apartments, you put it in my hand. You said you like Dario Argento. You should watch this. It's amazing. And not only is the film great by itself, and it moves fast. I was just amazed at uh, the pacing and the ideas in it. I mean, the imagery is beautiful. But you guys did a really nice job on the cleanups on these things, I'm willing to bet, because, you know, I'm, I'm sure they had their run and they're like, yeah, we'll just put it in the vault. And I have to say, for the for the disc that I got, plus the trailer disc, which is amazing, I, I think that's a great place, another place for people to start. It's a great sampler. Just the the range, you get an idea of the range, 
and they look amazing. Like I said, they're just really well shot. I mean, in terms of when you guys got your hands on them, how much cleanup did you have to do? Was this stuff in pretty good condition, or is it uh, has it been kind of iffy? Well, you know, that's really a Don question. Usually I'm like the, the, the puppy dog that uh, goes into the wrong place and gets its nose snap, you know, smacked. If I start talking about, you know, this area, you know, I usually stick my foot in my mouth. Uh, I would imagine that, you know, the masters we're getting aren't horrible. I know we had to have some sent back, and, and Don works on everything. No matter, you know, how good the material is, he makes it better. So there's that. And then, you know, in the case of Ferry in the Cage, I made the original deal incumbent upon getting that film. They didn't want to give it to me because it was buried in the vault. It had never come out before, and... They didn't want to bother with it because there's a thousand movies I could select from before I have to get that one. But they did, and, you know, they made us a high-def master, which we requested, and because of that, we were able to do a Blu-ray of it as well. You know, we are one of the few companies that will not up-convert something to make it into a Blu-ray. We don't feel that's uh, really uh, honest and we don't feel that the fans should be treated that way. You know, calling something a Blu-ray when it's just a upconverted, uh, you know, low res master. It's it's we don't do that. So like uh, I know that uh, Zoom Up Rape site was was again. It's going to be the same thing. And uh, if we get a nice high def master, we're going to do a Blu Ray of that one too. That's our commitment uh, to the Nikatsu people. I know it's your job to sell the entire collection, and it's kind of hard to pick one or two or five maybe for people to start. But um, if people are going to look at what's out there now, what's available, and I know you said you have another 20 coming down the line, what are a couple that they should start with? Where would you say, you know, these are good entries if you're interested, and uh, maybe that can, like, open up their palette and open up their their expanse to this and, and maybe get in and enjoy the entire series? The genres are so different. In the initial 26 films, there's something for everybody. In other words, if you like something light and funny, you might want to try uh, Horny Diver Tight Shellfish or the other uh, pearl diving movie. Um, if you want something a little horrifying, certainly Zoom Up Sex Apartment. You know, uh, if you want, we did a bunch of women in prison. True Story of a Woman in Jail, uh, Sex Hell, True Story of a Woman in Jail continues. Those are great. There's a lot of uh, like business type situations because business in Japan is is very uh, it's very part of their culture. I mean, you've heard the expression the salary man and all that stuff. So you know there's a lot of uh, movies revolving around offices, romance, and stuff like that. And then you also have your teachers. You know, I guess uh, assaulting teachers is a, a high interest in Japan. So we have the uh, female teacher movies. Uh, we've put out three of them, but there's more than that in the series. The funny thing is, is the, the title that I thought was the best of the original 26, we still haven't put out yet. So I would tell everybody, definitely look for Woman in Heat Behind Bars, and it's just amazing. And uh, the, the thing is, is I've gone through close to 250 films of the thousand Roman pornos. I've gone through 250 of them to select 46. And it's funny because when they send them to me, there's no English subtitles. 
So I have to look at them very, very carefully. I cannot judge on the details of the story because I don't speak Japanese. So to, for me to take that movie, it's got to be titillating and it's got to be somewhat over the top. And for example, once we started putting these out on a regular basis, there's another big company in Japan, which I, I don't want to name the name, but they got a hold of me and they said, hey, we did Roman porno too. Can you start putting out some of our titles? And I said, sure, send them to me. They sent me about 50 titles. And out of the 50, I could not select even a single movie that I thought was, you know, it just didn't do anything. They're, they're just very average. But the Nikatsu stuff, you know, there's so many gems in there. I, you know, I am leaning more towards now, you know, the, I don't think there's a huge amount of interest in the, uh, in the pearl diving movies and stuff like that. So the next uh, 20 that we're going to be getting are a bit more on the extreme side. You know, I could give you a, a few titles if you're interested of what's going to be coming down the line. Oh, sure. We're doing reissuing Star of David, which is a very, very dark Nikatsu movie. Um, we're going to clean it up and make it look real, real good. It did come out here a few years ago in a, a kind of really a, a, not a very good version at all. And uh, so we, we relicensed that one, and that'll be coming out. We're putting out that Rape 13 Hours and Zoom Up Rape site, which are very, very uh, uh, shocking titles. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of White Rose Campus, Everyone Gets Raped. We will be putting that out. Uh, there's a uh, very uh, famous uh, Nikatsu film called uh, Flower and Snake. You're going to have a bunch more zoom-up movies, a bunch more women in prison movies. And uh, just like I said, if, if you like what you see from our Nikatsu line, then we have the same taste. And you're really going to love what's coming <laughs> You know, I don't pick any weak or even mediocre ones. Everyone I pick is, I consider, over the top. So, like I said, there's a lot more to go. Um, they've already started sending me um, screeners for the next deal that we're going to probably do next year. If there's one thing I've learned when it comes to your company on the whole is that uh, you guys don't pick weak stuff. It's, the catalog is always very good. A lot of good stuff. It always looks really, really nice. Yeah, we try our best, you know. I'm not a huge fan of gore for gore's sake. I'm not a huge fan of misogyny, you know, with a, a wife and a mother and two daughters. My uh, life is very female-centric. So, you know, I was asked during an uh, interview once, uh, you know, why all the rape stuff? And it's, you know... It's I just I don't like rape. I don't like uh, women being treated horribly. I don't like that at all. What we're doing is we're bringing in movies from all over the world, and we're not commenting. We're showing you what the different cultures, what their exploitation films are like. I mean, if you've looked at uh, Life and Death from of a Porno Game from Serbia or you look at uh, the schoolgirl reports from Germany that came out around the same period, or the Swedish films we've been releasing, you know, with Christina Lindbergh uh, from the same period, you, you get to see, and even the Brazilian films, we did some, they're called porno chinchadas from Brazil. Again, they're not hardcore, um, but they're similar. And it, we're, we're basically showing you the exploitation films from the 70s and 80s 
from all these different parts of the world. We're not saying, hey, we stand behind this and we agree conceptually with the spirit of the film. I mean, nothing like that. These are films that you would, if not for us, I'd like to think, you would never know they would they existed. And even if you did, you would have no way of ever being able to see them. You know, I don't know about you, but I get so tired of the Hollywood fluff machine that just keeps grinding out, you know, average to below average just eh, movies. That's why I'm fascinated with uh, films from all over the world. And uh, to see what they considered exploitation in the 70s and 80s from all these different countries, I think it's really cool, and especially Japan. The Japanese were very prolific in their filmmaking. Thanks to Jerry Chandler for coming on the show. You can find out more about Synapse Films and the Roman Porno film series over at our website, projection-booth.com. So we are back and we are talking about Zoom-in sex apartments. As you heard in the interview with Jerry Chandler, this film is part of several hundred made by Nikatsu, created with name talent. So, John, what's been your experience with these uh, pink films, Roman pornos? Is there a difference between Roman porno and pink film? Uh, yeah. Uh, actually, as I uh, had alluded to earlier, uh, pink film is kind of more of the umbrella term for all these uh, all these pink films. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Nikatsu, the name of their series basically was Roman porno. Um, as Jerry mentions in his interview, Roman porno is shorthand for romantico porno, uh, which is basically you know romantic porno, and I assume that they that they coined this term because they wanted you know couples possibly to to go out and see these films you know go on a date go see a Roman porno you know get a little hot and busy you know go to the love hotel you know that kind of thing. As far as pink film goes, I mean there are so many. It, it's a pretty wide variety as far as you know the different kinds of films are. So, for example, we had the Nikatsu uh, series as we're talking about now, and we had the Toy series, which you know a lot of you guys know as Pinky Violence. So these kind of high school juvenile delinquent types of films that have uh, you know a very liberal amount of both sex and violence in them. Um, Shochiku, who is a kind of notoriously, um, I guess you could say conservative studio, um, they had their own series through a production line that they started called Tokatsu. And I've never seen any of these films before uh, in this particular line, but I'd really like to, uh, you know, knowing that Shochiku, for example, Shochiku is famous for a lot of the famous uh, uh, Ozu films. You know, that's that's how conservative and family-oriented they normally are. You know, it's like Disney going with... Uh, what was the name of the Disney offshoot that does, you know, R-rated films? Um, Dimension? Yeah, right. So it's it's kind of like that, you know, where, you know, you're sort of curious, like, you know, how far will they actually go? You know, even though it's a different studio, you know, in name, you know, it's still the same parent, right? So um, I think the only production major production studio that did not delve into the pink territory was toho um my guess is because you know they were already successful with their lines you know godzilla and all that stuff you know that they just didn't bother or maybe they felt they wanted to take the moral high ground in um at least uh, as far as films go so there is but, no uh, uh so there is no pinky kaiju films no no sorry you gotta yeah you gotta stop looking for them I'm sure someone will try to develop one, though, so with that said, right? But um, 
you know, and then Pink Film also describes, you know, this wide variety of independent films, you know, dating back to, you know, the early 60s. You know, um, it's no, you know, there's no mistake that, you know, Pink Films also kind of give, gave rose to, for example, the new wave of Japanese cinema, um, the ATG films, you know, the Art Theater Guild. You know, a lot of those films are very politically, artistically oriented, you know, like you said, like, for example, Wakamatsu films, you know, very uh, artistically and uh, uh, politically oriented, but they're also, they also feature a lot of nudity in them. And, you know, it's, it's, it may be a little hard to sort of suss out what exactly is a pink film and what exactly is not. But, you know, I think, you know, all these films collectively share a lot of these features as far as being, you know, nudity being featured in them, the storylines being, you know, very um, eclectic, you know, I mean, you have everything from, from, for example, parodies. Um, uh, I'm thinking of an example right now, uh, branded to kill, for example, the, the producer of uh, who produced uh, Seijun Suzuki's Branded to Kill, he made a parody pink film of that film, which is actually going to be featured on the next um, release of the of um, Branded to Kill on uh, Arrow Films in the UK. So if you want to check that out, you know, you know it's going to be on that DVD. That that should be uh, really interesting. I have not seen that myself. Um, so you have everything from parodies to political parables to very serious dramas to exploitation to comedy you know it's just you, you know pink film itself is is like a genre onto itself really you know when you think about it and you know not only that you know a lot of big directors got their start in pink film you know um people like Kiyoshi Kurosawa Yasuharu Hasebe um uh Takahisa Zeze I uh, was you know big in the art scene um as well as the uh, Academy Award-winning director uh, Yojiro Takira, who did uh, *Departures*, that was back in like 2008 or seven, uh, but he won the Academy Award uh, for Best Foreign Film that year, and he got his start in pink film. So you know, pink film is really you know, even though it's just been sort of dis- discovered, you know, in quotes, in the last like five or so years in the West, it's really big, you know, monolithic thing in in Japan as far as. Uh, the film-going audience is concerned. You know, previously on the show, we did um, a pastoral uh, Teriyama, and we mm-hmm. talked about Teriyama's work. Would you see him as sort of an arty version of this, or does he have any connection to it at all in that way? Again, you know, I wouldn't call him necessarily a pink film director, but he was sort of in that realm, you know? I guess you could say, you know, loosely related to pink film just because, you know, there were some, you know, there are elements of nudity and sexuality in films. And again, I would say the same thing for a lot of the ATG directors in general, you know, the Art Theater Guild, you know, it's like they're not pink film directors, but they're in that realm. And some of them did go into, you know, more formalized pink film and some of them just stayed in the art film realm. So it's kind of, you know, there's no barriers as far as you know like what is pink film and what is not because you you know there's always loose associations you know just like every other kind of uh entertainment medium you know punk rock you know what exactly is punk rock you know some people might argue that you know some bands are not punk rock because they don't sound you know they don't have the buzzsaw you know barrage barraging drums type of sound you know but 
the attitude is there. Is punk just an attitude or is it just a sound, you know? So the same thing I would say with, you know, pink film or film in general, you could say, right, is that there are really no barriers. You get loosely associated because of certain elements and qualities of your film and certain attitudes that you bring to your film. But it's hard to say whether, you know, someone like Terayama, for example, in this case, is really a pink film director, but he's certainly flattered with it at least a little bit. Yeah, some people might say that if you know how to play your instruments, you're not punk rock. And I I definitely see somebody like Awakamatsu having his feet in both ATG, which I know ATG had put out some of his stuff on VHS and maybe DVD years ago, and then having his stuff in this, you know, Nikatsu kind of racy thing. I love Nikatsu films a lot of times just because they seem like that junk drawer. You know, they seem like that the the stuff that we love to talk about on the show where it's, you know, could be considered garbage, but every once in a while you find the gems among the trash heap kind of thing. And I really appreciate what they were doing, but not to say that other studios weren't doing a lot of the same thing. You know, to to Rob's point, you know, maybe you could consider like um the story of O sequel that Teriyama did to kind of be along these lines but at the same time then you would probably say oh well then um Oshima was making pink films when he made in the realm of the senses which you know is so far removed <laughs> from being a fun little film at all even though it's you know it, it caused a scandal with all of the nudity and everything and i think it's it's that whole idea of you know a lot of uh, people who were going to see quote-unquote art films in the 60s and 70s were there for the boobs while other people were going for the art. And it might have been the same thing where some people are going to pink film for the art rather than for the boobs. And it's funny to me that they call them pink films since in the U.S. when we say, you know, is there pink in the film – Generally, I'm thinking like inside of the vagina and in these films, you know, it's just like no, uh, you know, no crotch region whatsoever, no pubic hair, nothing like that. And some of the shots in Zoom In Sex Apartments kind of make me laugh with just the obtuse placement of objects in the foreground to block out sex things in the background. Sort of like uh, how it's done in Austin Powers to such totally. a ridiculous method. Yeah. Did you get my other gift? We did. Yes, Basil. Nice rack. But who in the world gave us this drawing? It's bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> nice melons. Yeah, yeah. Th- to tell you the truth, I don't, I don't really like watching sex in Japanese films a lot because it's usually really clumsy and you know the movements seem all wrong. And you know, it, but I, I actually really like the creative ways they use to you know to cover their bodies. You know, there's one scene in uh, in Zoom in uh, Sex Apartments where you know they're having sex like up against a wall and they're sort of like writhing and it's like just perfect movement to cover the um to cover up the woman enough where you know it would pass through the centers but you know of course you know you can you can see the man's butt and you can see enough flesh to sort of like i guess you know get aroused so to speak you know yeah towards the end when she goes back to her home after you know the killer has um, fallen off this roof and the crazy girl has gone with him and her crotch explodes in fire and everything. That awkwardness that you're talking about really is appropriate for the way that the husband is just this kind of fumbling mess of a lover. 
and she's just so unsatisfied. And that whole idea of him, you know, writhing and stuff with that lamp in front of their crotches is just like, yeah, this really kind of works for me. And it was funny too, you know, just a few shots later when she's kind of ready to go back out on the prowl and everything. And she's standing there so at, at such an interesting angle about to put on those black panties that she had on at the beginning and just standing in such a way that like, Oh, you can see her butt fully, but you are not going to see anything, any sort of mons or whatever. There's no crotch going to be visible in this. And for a woman to put on her underwear and not give any sort of uh, peek at that, I was just like, wow, that that's a skill. John, you have seen quite a few uh, films in your day uh, from uh, the Asian area of the world, and specifically Japan, and was wondering if we were going to seek out other pink films, what ones have you seen that you liked? That's a good question, because to be honest, um, pink film is not really my genre of interest as far as Asian film goes. Um, and I might be partially saying that to sort of avoid answering the question. I would say really that a lot of the films that are coming out now, a lot of the films that Synapse has, for example, with both their regular line as well as I think they acquired Panic House um, of several years ago. But uh, Panic House put out you know a lot of the um, pinky violence films. Those are really worth checking out. Uh, I think the films that Synapse is picking up from Nikatsu are also worth checking out as far as the Western audience goes. I think if you really want to try to dig deeper into the genre, you know you do want to go into the territory of checking out the um, the politically oriented films that we were talking about. You know the Wakamatsu films. Uh, actually, um, a couple of his films have been released on DVD, but they're out of print now. It was a go-go second time version and uh, one other. I can't remember. I'm sure someone listening to this right now is probably yelling it in their uh, iPod right now. But, um, but anyway, so you'd want to check out his films. You'd want to check out, you know, some of the films of AT that ATG released at the time. You want to check out uh, Wakamatsu's um, partner in crime, so to speak, uh, Masao Adachi. His his films too are sort of within that realm. But you know, to tell you the truth, and I know that we can't probably can't do a, a pink film podcast without mentioning, you know, um, you know Jasper Sharp, uh, Doctor Jasper Sharp, I should say. Now he just got his uh, doctorate. Um, wrote a book on a pink film called "Behind the Pink Curtain: The Complete History of Japanese Sex Cinema." I think he might argue what I have to say, but uh, I would say that there's a lot of pink film that's really not watch, uh, worth watching, um, especially when you start going into the '90s and beyond. I'm all for you know the cheap film making aesthetic, but you know I think that's when the aesthetic was taken a little too far. You know when you go to the direct to video stuff, the you know so called V cinema stuff, as well as stuff that just got pumped into the theaters. You know because of diminishing returns, a lot of these uh, studios either abandoned pink film or just did not put as much money into the production of these uh, films. So and it really shows. Um, there was a, I forget the name of the label, there was a label that put out some of these uh, direct-to-video pink films. Um, there was one I remember called uh, Beautiful Target. It was actually it was actually directed by the same director as uh, Zoom in Sex Apartments, uh, coincidentally speaking. But it is such a boring film, you know, and it has some skin in it, whoop-de-doo, you know, that kind of thing. But just the film itself, it's like this kind of, 
half-assed action sort of espionage sort of film, I guess you could say. And a lot of those films are just not really worth checking out. I mean, you might be able to find a gem in the rough, but, you know, I trust uh, Dr. Sharp in, you know, his assessment of that era that, you know, it wasn't the greatest era. Um, You know, if you really want to check out the really prime pink films, you know, yeah, definitely go into late 60s, 70s. I think that's more up uh, people's alleys. Well, I just want to throw onto the pile that if you don't know where to start and you want to have some good fun watching a bunch of trailers, get Synapse's uh, trailer disc for the Nikatsu Roman Porno line. It is like an hour and a half to two hours worth of trailers, and it's pretty amazing because it gives you an idea of, I mean, they put out, I think, 25, 26 films, something like that, and it gives you a view of what, this whole range is so instead of just picking one up and going well i hope this one's pretty good uh get the trailer disc and that gives you sort of an overview of just there's some that are wacky there's some that are serious there's some that are horror films like this one and um it's i I think that's sort of a good place to start but then again i love i love trailer compilations i mean back in the day when i worked at thomas video i used to get those something weird trailer tapes all the time and just watch them constantly because they were the most entertaining things in the world i think what you said uh really again to nail in as far as you know pink film it's um it's endearingness i guess you could say is that you know there is a really good wide variety of films you know um the dvd you're talking about is only covering you know the roman porno line you know, imagine again, we have all these studios that are making all these films and, you know, and they have such eclectic, interesting storylines, some of them. And, you know, there's a lot of, again, a lot of garbage in there mixed in, I'm sure. That, uh, you know, I think even though, again, it's not my favorite genre, I would definitely recommend people trying to dig and find, you know, those gems in the rough, so to speak. John, I want to say that the other Wakamatsu film that was released was Ecstasy of the Angels. Correct. And if memory serves, it was released in the uh, – some of the reels were in different order. Yeah. But I, that could just be a, right. a rumor that I heard. Right. But And by the way, uh, speaking of Wakamatsu, I kind of remember in uh, France, uh, there was a label that put out a box set of uh, many of his seminal films. Um, Seaman going under. Yes. <laughs> okay, never mind. We're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. They spoke of it first in whispers. Then it took the media by storm. Password. Scrooge. So be it. Bob Guccione and Penthouse Films International present Caligula. If only all Rome had just one neck. of power gone mad in all its insane dimension. Caligula. Take my horse to his own bed. The emperor who devoured Rome. (laughs) 
for cruelty, Lust for Lust, a film that tells the truth as no film ever dared. Lisa Ann Savoy, Helen Moran, Peter O'Toole, John Gielgud, in the most controversial film ever made. Caligula, no rumor can match the reality. That's right, we kick off our look at Roman films, going from Roman porno to Roman films in the month of August, named after Augustus Caesar, of course, by looking at one of the most wicked rulers of Rome, with Tinto Brass's, or uh, um, Bob Guccione's, or uh, Gore Vidal's Caligula. Uh, don't miss it, as we look at this notorious film starring John Gilgood, Peter O'Toole, Helen Mirren, and a swath of penthouse pets. Oh, and um, Malcolm McDowell as Little Boots. Before we go, I want to thank Jerry Chandler of Synapse Films for stopping by to talk about his company and the work that they're doing with Nikatsu's Roman porno films and Zoom in Sex Apartments. And I also want to thank our special guest this week, co-host Coffin John. It has been over a year since you were on the show with our Branded to Kill episode. So what have you been doing in the recent months? Living my life. Uh, no, um, besides that, uh, I'm still doing V-Cinema, but it's only as an Asian film blog. Um, the current uh, acting editor-in-chief now is uh, Dr. John Barra. He's uh, taken the reins just because um, I no longer have the time to be able to, to work on the website as I used to. I hope that changes when I get a new job. Um, the podcast is no longer in existence, apparently, anywhere. So if you happen to uh, learn that uh, we did have a podcast at one time, but uh, it's been wiped off of uh, iTunes. It's been wiped off of Stitcher, as far as I know. So I'd hope to do another podcast at some time in the future, but um, under different conditions. You know, those conditions are just not presenting themselves just yet. So um, hopefully sometime in the future. I don't know, though, again. But otherwise, just enjoying family life, um, enjoying my, you know, in the year that uh, we talked, actually got married, bought a house, you know, did all the American dream stuff. So uh, enjoying that for now. V Cinema can be reached at, uh, can be checked out at vcinemashowshow.com. Well, very cool. Glad to hear all that's working out for you. And of course, uh, your episodes with us have not disappeared. You are not only on Branded to Kill, but several other episodes, including uh, two of my personal favorites, Battle Royale and um, Battles Without Honor and Humanity. Thank you. So thanks again for coming on the show. You can find links to Coffin John's latest, as he was saying, and other connections to this week's film at projection-booth.com. And hey, uh, you can also find a link over there to our iTunes page. And uh, how about you go over there and review it, uh, maybe five stars, because we'd really appreciate it. Thanks.
far away from the dark.